You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So we've been talking about BEPS 2.0 for a while now, and things are finally crystallizing within the inclusive framework. But here in the U.S., there's a real question of how this is going to work out as U.S. law is made on the Hill and not in Paris. Now, obviously, there are ongoing developments that are coming in thick and fast with respect to tax reform. But let's talk about what we've got as of the Biden and Ways and Means proposals. We'll catch everyone up on future episodes as we get closer, if we get closer, to tax reform. And now today, we have another installment of our Futures program, where we invite rock stars from our more junior ranks to join the conversation. I think you'll enjoy this. So with me to discuss are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, Brett Weaver, an international tax principal from our Seattle office, who also leads KPMG US's BEPS initiative, and Sivan Kozar a senior manager in our Washington National Tax International Tax Group. It does feel like clients have a little bit of BEPS fatigue, but I think the word now is here it is, right? We really need to start doing something about it. I guess we're coming to the clubhouse turn at least. Is that right, Brett? Where are we? Yeah, that's exactly right, Kim. On October 8th, we basically had the world community come together and say, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And what is this thing? It's really agreeing on a global minimum tax referred to as pillar two in this global tax agreement. And then also pillar one is this idea of really reallocating profits of large multinationals till taxable profit more toward the markets where these large companies are doing business. When on October 8th, members of the inclusive framework that represents about 90% of global GDP, they all came together with very few holdouts. They said, we have a deal. We have a timeline to actually get this done. The G20 finance ministers and the central bank governors issued a communique endorsing the October 8th statement from the inclusive framework. Go get this thing done. In fact, we'd like to see you get it done and implemented in 2023, which is incredibly difficult to think about pulling all this together that quickly. Ireland (laughs) and Hungary, are they still holdouts? No, those were one of the big changes from the July, you know, we're getting close statement to the Mm -hmm. October, we got it done statement. Both countries did come on board. They did get something in this deal. Let's talk about Ireland, which has probably been the most in the news. If you look at the July statement, they talked about a minimum tax rate, which was always their big issue. It could be as low as 10%, but maybe as high as, you know, 20%. And of course, the U.S. government was asking for 25 at one point, right? Mm -hmm. So that's their big deal. They got the low end of that range, a 15% rate for this global minimum tax. And Ireland also retained the ability to use their existing 12.5% rate for companies that don't meet the 750 million euro sales threshold. So they can still offer that rate to those smaller companies. One thing I would add there too, is people often don't talk about Estonia, but Ireland, Hungary, and Estonia coming on board means that the EU can do a directive. Yeah, that was a big deal. That is gonna make things easier. Now, as we've seen in the DAX 6 world, easier doesn't mean easy, but it does mean easier. 
in the smaller countries, speaking of Estonia, there are a lot of DSTs out there, right? And as part of this agreement, the DSTs are going to have to come down. But on the other hand, those countries are not necessarily going to get an allocation under Pillar 1. Is that true? Or do we think that maybe between amount A and amount B, everyone who's taken down a DST is going to get something? Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the issues underpinning to what extent and how quickly this really gets done. The details are going to matter as to how much any particular country actually gets. Yeah. So depending on how that shakes out, that's going to drive whether net-net you're getting more than the DSTs. But I think this is a massive political issue because it's going to be hard for countries to drop their DSTs if what they think they're getting out of amount A isn't anywhere close. Mm -hmm. TBD. It's helpful that the smaller countries have a lower nexus threshold for triggering an amount A allocation. But I have no idea whether Estonia or Colombia, whether that's a realistic number to actually get them an allocation. Right. The 250,000 euro threshold applies for jurisdictions that have GDP lower than 40 billion euros. But I'm not sure how many jurisdictions that applies to. It's supposed to help developing countries, but developing countries fall along a pretty broad range, and it's not clear to me how many are helped by the rule. Having a relatively low threshold to trigger an amount A allocation was one of the carrots offered to developing countries to get them on board with this thing. But they wanted a much higher share of profits to be reallocated than they Mm -hmm. actually agreed to. Their big deal is amount B. I feel like amount B maybe has a squish factor that could make it up to them. And maybe it's just me, but I'm not even sure there's been a lot of clarity as to what that is. Because amount B, is that a presumption? Is it a floor? Is it a ceiling? I think the inclusive framework, the statement, unlike the blueprint, didn't really limit to marketing and distribution activities. I think that amount B is rightfully the focus of the developing countries as to whether they could make something up. Absolutely. Right. And it sounds simple. You know, let's just make sure that we're leaving kind of an agreed upon return for routine activities. And that way, taxpayers and governments can quit fighting about routine returns. But to your point, it's really not because the starting point is, well, what is this thing? And it's pretty clear that developing countries don't want this just to be like some agreed upon cost plus markup on marketing and distribution. They're really looking at it as another way to reallocate profits to the market. So as we think about it, some of the challenge that we saw was since it was so ill-defined, they were pulling more profit out than existed in the system. So Mm -hmm. the clients were really nervous about what that might look like without more information. And the entrepreneurs around the globe were going to be eating all the losses just because there wasn't that much profit to allocate. Mm -hmm. To your point, if you start with what may seem to be a pretty modest number, let's say it's 2% of sales. For some industries, that's a big win. It's like, well, man, you know, we were paying more than that anyways. This is cool. Mm -hmm. But for other industries, particularly where they're capital intensive, et cetera, 2% of sales might be, you know, 80% of system profits, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes no sense because the real value adding activities are not even in these markets. So that raises the question, how do you then come up with some kind of simplified approach here that works for multiple industries across multiple regions. It seems like mission impossible to me. 
The other thing is we've heard a lot, even recently during the COVID discussions, where folks say, I've got a limited risk distributor here, or I've got limited risk services here in this jurisdiction. What exactly does that mean? When you've got upside and all things are going great, that's one thing. And it's cost plus whatever. And everyone goes, oh, we don't want cost plus whatever. We want a percentage of sales. When things are not going well, and you're making losses because your supply chains are all disrupted or whatever the heck it is. Nobody wants to share in the losses. No one really wants to say, oh, well, you know, limited risk is not zero risk. It's limited risk. And therefore, let's put a portion of the system losses in. The focus has all been how do we hive up the upside? But there's going to have to be at some level, some acknowledgement of the downside as well. I don't know, Brett, whether you've heard about any conversations about the downside. So taxpayers ask the question you just posed, rightfully so. What happens when I have a bad year and I'm losing money? It seems like losses ought to get pushed to your country too, because you just changed the risk allocation, right? right. And, you know, crickets. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's switch gears to pillar two. As you said, Brett, we're getting a consensus and it seems like the minimum tax rate is agreed to be 15%. What else is going on? Well, yeah, we did take a few steps forward, the rate being one of them in the October 8th announcement. I think besides agreeing on the rate, the other thing that we got out of Pillar 2 is clarity about how some of these rules are going to work, a country-by-country approach to this thing, which is something long been pushed, but, you know, guilty doesn't really align with that. So that raises a question about guilty coexistence with this new regime. One of the things that's interesting in the statement all the inclusive framework members, they agreed to a, a common approach here around these globe rules. But what they meant by a common approach is that it's not a minimum standard. So you don't have to actually enact a guilty type minimum tax in your country if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. But if somebody else enacts these globe rules, which is both an income inclusion rule like a guilty or a UTPR, you agree that you'll let them operate their rules. So that may include denying deductions under a UTPR rule or similar to our beat. Let's face it. Isn't this just either I'm going to claim it as an IIR or somebody else is just going to do a top up of some kind or they're going to push up their national headline rate, but it's me or it's them. So (laughs) wouldn't you rather it be you? It's not the race to the bottom, but it's going to be a race to the middle. It certainly seems that way. We're just going to reset rate expectation, but unless there's a uniform, not minimum global tax rate, you're still going to get the same dynamics in terms of cross-border transactions. I think it's the same kind of thing that we saw happen with Ireland. Back in July, they were saying at least 15%. They said, oh, we don't like that at least. The minute it was 15%, they were on. And then I think on the U.S. side, it was interesting because we were talking about rates that were way above And then what that at least 15% did, I think, when we saw the House Ways and Means proposal come out, is they dialed it way back. The Biden plan back in May was at 21% for guilty. The Ways and Means proposal is at 16 point a bunch of decimals. Is there any possibility that that jurisdictional issue could be fixed via regulations? The Wyden proposal had like a mandatory high tax exception approach, which I think would probably get you close enough. But I don't know that you can make an election mandatory. For guilty especially, it was already a stretch to get the high tax exception to begin with. I see what you're saying. 
You put in a high tax exception, you make it elective. The high tax exception forces you into looking at your effective tax rate on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis in well, order for- to kick it yeah. out. It forces you not to blend. I think that's the, the concern. Mm-hmm. And you end up with something that is not country by country, admittedly, but sort of has a similar effect. And I guess it's not universally going to be great for clients, particularly if the clients have losses. That's absolutely those. right. So yeah. that, yeah, the in those jurisdictions. <laughs> and so, again, when the times are good, it'll work. When the times are not so good, depending on which jurisdiction they're not so good for, you're not going to have people making that election. For it to comply with what's going on at Pillar 2, it would have to be mandatory. The other thing is timing of foreign taxes. When do they come in and with which U.S. year do they correspond and how would you deal with those issues? From the perspective of revenue raising, wouldn't we want to kick up the 10.5% guilty rate to the 15 in any case? The crux of this guilty coexistence issue that was specifically called out in the October agreement is that very issue because if guilty as it sits today was agreed that it's an acceptable IAR, then it really does change the game. It's not so much us or them. Because the way these rules work is if you have a good IIR, let's assume existing guilty today is that, then that turns off the UTPR, right? Because right. it keeps it. And that's the interesting piece. If you got a ton of income sitting in a low tax jurisdiction and it's all blended against your high taxed income, well, if a UTPR would apply, it would go tax that pocket of low taxed income. Mm-hmm. But if guilty, just as it sits today, is approved, that coexists, well, then U.S. multinationals get a deal that nobody else has, right? Because it'll allow them to continue to have those pockets of low tax income that they can blend and nobody can touch it through the UTPR. Why would anyone else give us that? I don't think they will, honestly. But they're willing to give the U.S. something. Clearly, guilty coexistence is called out, as we know it's an issue, because they have to get the U.S. to actually on board. So if you got to cut them a little slack, question is how much? Do you go all the way to let them guilty it is and just say, it'll be fine? I don't know. That's where we're going to have to see where it goes. Right, because we may not be able to get tax reform done no matter what we want. I think that's a big issue. (laughs) The other piece of the puzzle is, of course, beat because it doesn't function like a UTPR right now. So I think so I think the idea for the US to be compliant with pillar 2 we're also looking at having to make changes to beat. Shield was much closer, right? I think that's right. If you had a related payee that met the minimum tax rule and you had no other low tax profits in the group, you can base strip from a 21% or higher rate to a 15% rate environment, and SHIELD wasn't going to stop you. But it would ensure that you had the 15% ETR nailed down somewhere in your system. The Ways and Means proposal took maybe a quarter step, maybe a half step towards an undertax payment rule, did it not? Totally. I actually think it took a bigger step. One thing that I think is interesting about the SHIELD is it Although it was modeled on the UTPR, it didn't act like a top-up tax. If the deductions were bad, they were disallowed entirely. Yep. Whereas these tweaks to the beat do kind of make it function a little bit more like a top-up mechanism than an outright denial of deduction. Yep. Beat is a clawback. It's not a full clawback because to a certain extent, we really are talking about just a percentage. Whereas shield, if you're talking about a direct payment, to an undertaxed payee, 
is a full clawback, you only get a scale back to the extent that you're looking at the indirect payments rule. That's right. And even then, it's not a scale based on the payment. So it's still sort of cliffy because it's a scale based on if you're low taxed, you're in that. If you have a low taxed entity in the group, you have to do that scaling. And the scale is based on profits. Wouldn't our clients just prefer Shield because there is an exemption effectively for U.S.-based multinationals? Absolutely. Yep. So they read through that proposal and said, okay, thankfully I'm off. I don't even have to worry about this. So I think that's very clear that our U.S.-based multinationals would prefer Shield to current beat. I think the Ways and Means proposal effectively does the same thing in terms of carving out our U.S.-based multinationals. And it does this in two ways. It doesn't officially take them out of scope for BEAT, but there's a new exemption for payments that are subject to U.S. tax. Those are not going to be subject to BEAT. And importantly here, although it's not entirely clear from the face of the legislation that's proposed from Ways and Means, the legislative history, both the JCT Tech X and the Budget Committee report say that guilty would count for this. And that's notwithstanding the Section 250 deduction. So it wouldn't be a reduced guilty. The other thing here that I think is helping our U.S. multinationals is the fact that the Ways and Means proposal would give you the full effect of all your credits for BEAT, whereas currently most of your credits, including very importantly the foreign tax credit, is going to increase your BEAT liability. So it seems like these global min tax rules didn't start with the U.S. driving the bus, but they aren't going to finish without a hard steer from the United States. Global tax reform that's inseparably linked with U.S. tax reform, that's a big deal, and it's certainly impacted the way companies are thinking about tax planning. It's something that you have to take into account as you're structuring new business operations, et cetera. What is clear is the status quo is not sustainable. Will fortune favor the bold? It's honestly hard to tell. And with things moving as quickly as they are, we may not know the answer for years beyond implementation. So brace yourself for extra innings. And in the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.